0: If you'd pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us the means through your word to connect with you. Things like your word itself and praying and serving you and serving your people and sharing your gospel. Lord, we, we thank you for all of these things, that they are blessings and works of grace in our lives. Lord, I, I pray for our time as we study your word that... Lord, we'd be faithful to it. We'd be faithful to knowing your word, that I'd be faithful to preaching your word, Lord, and that we continue to grow in, in the knowledge of your eternal scriptures. Lord, I pray that you bless our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So after a 15-week hiatus from the Gospel of John, we resume this morning in John chapter 4. It's a story where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. But before I get into that, I think it's helpful to look at another story in the Gospel of John that we talked about all the way back in October. At the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus has started to rise in popularity throughout the region. And a Pharisee named Nicodemus approaches Jesus to learn more about him. So I'll actually begin by looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly. Truly. And you do not believe how can you believe if i tell you heavenly things Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again that he must be born of water and the spirit as we discussed when we first studied this passage being born of water and spirit is synonymous with being born again God causes a spiritual rebirth or regeneration in the life of everyone who is a believer in the gospel the Old Testament makes several references to water as a rich metaphor for the presence and blessing of the Lord. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 27 talks of a future time when the Lord will sprinkle water on his people and impart his spirit, which will enable people to walk in his ways. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or Psalm 23, one of the most well-known passages in the whole Bible, again uses the image of water to talk about divine renewal. Psalm one, Psalm twenty three, verses one through three says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake." And there are many other passages to which we could look. Water is a symbol of renewal for God's blessing and for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see that in the Old Testament, and that carries over into the Gospels. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's an Old Testament scholar, and he doesn't understand. And all of this is background for our passage today in John four, where Jesus will again have a discussion and talk about renewal, and he will again use a metaphor in talking about water. So with that, we come to John chapter four, Jesus is on the move. He's left Judea, and he's journeying to Galilee, and he's venturing out of Jewish territory. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he passed through to Samaria. First thing I want to focus on, the text says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's relevant because it sets up the location of our story today. There's actually more than one route Jesus technically could have taken to get to where he was going. Um, but the route that he took brought him through Samaria which set up a divinely appointed meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. So where the text says that Jesus had to, it's not so much that there was only one road, it's that he had to in order to, to, to fulfill the divine plan. Verse 5 says So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. John makes reference to Jacob and Joseph in the Old Testament. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the region to which Jesus has traveled is in an area of land that had been owned by Jacob and had been given to Joseph. We see him giving Joseph this land in Genesis chapter 48. And it's this land to which Jesus has come. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. When the passage talks about Jesus being warned from his journey, it's a reminder that Jesus is human. During his earthly ministry, he experienced fatigue. We see him sleep. We see times where he eats and drinks, times where he goes off to be by himself alone. He's fully man. This verse tells us that it was the sixth hour. Again, I think the time of day is relevant to the story. In first century Jewish timekeeping, the first hour was sunrise. So when it says it's the sixth hour, it's around noon. And all of this is setting the scene for what follows. Verse 7, a a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now with that, we need some background. If you remember back at Christmas time and we were looking at passages in Isaiah, one of the things that we kept talking about was how Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had a northern and a southern kingdom. Well, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and thousands of Jewish people from the northern tribes were deported from their land. The Assyrians procreated with these Israelites And so you had a group of people who were half Jewish and half half, half Israelite and half Assyrian. And it was this ethnic group which became known as the Samaritans. And there's actually still Samaritans today. There's about 800 Samaritans who live mostly in Israel. And there are very significant distinctions between Samaritans and Israelites. For instance, Samaritans do not believe the entire Old Testament is Scripture. They only believe in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, since they don't believe in the entire Old Testament, for the Samaritans, Jerusalem is not the sacred place that it is for Israelites. Because if all you have are the first five books, they're not in Jerusalem yet by the end of Deuteronomy. So instead, the sacred site of worship for the Samaritans, uh, both in the first century and today in 2020, is Mount Gerizim. And actually about half of the present-day Samaritan community lives on that mountain, or, or near that mountain. In the first century, a lot of animosity between these two groups. About 160 years before Jesus has this interaction with the Samaritan woman, A group of Israelite soldiers had destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And there were other retaliatory attacks from the Samaritans on Israelite sites. These groups hated each other. In John 8, Jesus is being questioned, and they'll actually ask him if he's a Samaritan or has a demon. Sort of putting those two things as if they're on the same plane. Again, the Samaritans were looked down upon. These two groups do not get along. Within a generation of the life of Jesus, official Jewish rabbinic teaching would declare that Samaritans were inherently ritually unclean and defiled. Obviously, they weren't. But again, it just shows the disdain between the two groups. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. I and mean, we, we use the phrase, a good Samaritan, somebody who helps you change a tire on the road. There's a ministry called uh, Samaritan's Purse. Jesus gives the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, a lawyer is questioning Jesus about the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells a parable about a man who's been severely beaten and left for dead. A priest and a Levite each come by the man They pass him by, they leave him. But it's a Samaritan who sees this man, who tends to him, takes care of him. The Good Samaritan is the hero of the story. It's a spectacular picture of selflessness and love for people. But when you understand that parable in the context of the hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, it makes the story all that much more striking. And I give those details because I think it helps color our passage this morning in John chapter 4. So we return to our passage. The woman is coming to the wall. It's the middle of the day. Unusual for her to be coming in the middle of the day, alone. Generally, people came to get water in the morning in groups. Certainly the thought is that she's coming by herself because she doesn't want to interact with others. But Jesus speaks to this woman at the end of verse 7, and he says, give me a drink. Verse 8 adds the note that that Jesus is by himself here because the disciples had gone to to get food. So Jesus asks for a drink. You have a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. And in verse 9, we see that this woman is taken aback. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. And the verse ends with the parenthetical comment that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, the two groups do not get along. As he often does in the Gospels, Jesus is unconcerned with social customs and taboos. We see Jesus touch lepers. We see him associating with sinners, with those on the margins. Even within his band of disciples, Jesus picked Matthew, who was a tax collector, who were hated by Jewish people in the first first century Roman Empire. But here we see Jesus openly conversing with a woman in an ethnic group who was looked down upon. And so the woman asks how it could be that he would ask her for a drink. But as the conversation continues, Jesus will flip the conversation. Because the matter of ultimate significance in the story is really not about her giving Jesus a drink, but rather it's about the water that Jesus can give to her. In John's Gospel, sometimes we see Jesus answering questions that the person should have been asking. And in verse 10, again, Jesus will totally change the subject from well water and instead point to what he is, who he is and what he has to offer. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus points out that she doesn't know who he is. He's not so much judging her for that but he's directing her to what she should be asking him for jesus uses the phrase gift of god the greek word that's used here for gift is found 11 times in the new testament and each time it refers to a gift which has been graciously bestowed by the lord Jesus is referring to the gift of eternal life, which comes from God through Jesus and the lifelong spiritual renewal, which was to be bestowed upon people through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that if the woman recognized who he was and knew what the gift of God was, she would want this gift and that he would provide living water. Quite the statement to make to somebody you've just met. But when he says living water, what does that mean? I think that there's two facets to that answer. First, the living water of Jesus is a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's clear based on what Jesus says in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Holy Spirit is undoubtedly rooted in the essence of living water. But I believe that this passage is implicitly getting at the work of all three persons in the Trinity in our salvation and sanctification. Because all three persons are active in the process. Because if you don't have faith in Jesus, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the living water. And if you don't have God's spirit, then you don't have faith. You have not been born again. You don't have eternal life. But the way to get living water is through the gospel and faith in Jesus. The woman responds in verses 11 and 12. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank it from it it himself, as did his sons and livestock. She misses the point. She looks at what Jesus has said in purely naturalistic terms. She considers how deep the well is, and that Jesus doesn't have the the proper tools or, or vessel to take water. How is it that Jesus could provide living water? It seems laughable. It seems like he's making an impossible promise. They're at Jacob's well, Jacob, this venerated figure from the Old Testament. To the woman, it sounds like Jesus is saying that he's somehow greater than Jacob. Certainly, the irony is that Jesus is better than Jacob, and the water he provides is greater. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water from the well will merely satisfy a physical need. But what Jesus is saying is that he provides the water that fulfills our spiritual needs. It's the water of salvation. It's the water of grace. It's the water of forgiveness. And that when you believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus, the effort we put into justifying ourselves, the effort that we put into trying to be good enough for God, all of that is forever quenched. You must keep drinking regular water returning to the well, returning to the sink, to the fridge, to the water bottle. But Jesus eternally quenches our need for life and eternal life and salvation with the living water that he provides. Because he says that that water becomes a spring of water. Because it's water that comes from God and not from our own efforts or merit. And because it comes from God, we cannot exhaust the supply. The water that Jesus provides flows through the human soul and it wells up to eternal life. And again, for Jesus, this language does not come out of nowhere. Jeremiah 17, 3 refers to the Lord as a fountain of living water. Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3 talks of a future time when the Lord will will bring deliverance to his people and draw water from the well of salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus gives us access to the living water, and it is through Christ alone that we can have this living water, because the only way we can have it is for him to give it to us, for it to be an act of his grace. Jesus has told this woman something amazing. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Just like Nicodemus, who, when he was told he needed to be born again, responded by questioning how he could enter a second time into his mother's womb. This woman is still primarily thinking about water about physical water. In verse 16, Jesus changes the subject. But in doing that, he helps the woman see that he's not merely talking about water. He's not just some guy. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So this woman's had five husbands and she has a sixth man with whom she's living who's not her husband and Jesus knows all of this. But she doesn't know him. She's never met him. Yet he knows her background. He knows her situation. He knows her story. And in that Jesus reveals to her that again he's just he's not just some guy making claims. He's not just simply talking about water. There's more depth to what he's saying. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Before this, the woman thought that Jesus was trying to offer her a way to an easier life. Never having to to go to the well to get water. Something that certainly took a lot of time and effort. But in Jesus showing that he knew her, he knew her life, and then he was pointing her to something greater. It's not unlike when Jesus calls Nathanael in John chapter 1. And Jesus again reveals insight into Nathanael's life, that he knows things about Nathanael. And Nathanael says to Jesus, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus knows us. So you have the Samaritan woman and you have Nicodemus. Two stories. Two encounters that Jesus has with two different people. And when considering these two stories side by side, it's striking that these two people could not be any more different. Nicodemus is prestigious. The woman is part of a group who's hated. Nicodemus is an expert in the law. The woman was probably illiterate. Nicodemus follows the law. The woman has her sin exposed. Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. The woman stumbles upon Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The woman finds Jesus in the middle of the day. He's a man. She's a woman. Nicodemus is mentioned by name. She is simply called the Samaritan woman or the woman. Nicodemus never quite understands what Jesus is telling him. The woman grows in knowledge of Jesus and who he is throughout this passage. But the one thing that they have in common is that they are both in need of Jesus. The offer of salvation is for both of them. The offer to be born again, the offer for living water, it's for both of them. And not just for them, but the offer is for the whole world. To know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus. No matter how moral and righteous someone like Nicodemus was, Jesus told him, you must be born again. And that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No matter how sinful the Samaritan woman was, Jesus could say to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. No matter how righteous Nicodemus was, he still needed the saving grace of Christ. And no matter how much the the Samaritan woman was looked down upon by society, Jesus still deemed her worthy of his grace. Because we are all equally in need of grace. We are all dead in sin. And Jesus died for all who believe in him and his gospel. With the gospel, you're never so good that you don't need grace. And you're never so bad that you can't have grace. Are you at the well of trying to justify yourself? Are you at the well of self-righteousness? Or have you believed in Jesus and been given the living water of eternal life? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you offer living water and eternal life. Lord, that we were dead in sin, but the life that you came to live, Lord, the life that we could not live, you lived for us. And the death that we deserve to die, You died in our place, Lord, for all who believe in you and trust in you. And for that we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.